1: being of the same mind as Christ. Particularly when the only Jesus we really know, the only Jesus we ever surrendered our life to, that holy infant so tender and mild, we totally miss the fullness of his mind and the commitment of sacrifice. If the greatest of our commitments is to play our drum for him, a rumpa pa pum pum then we've completely missed out on what it means to die daily. What it means to be fully committed to Christ.
0: During Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. But do you truly comprehend the incarnation of God? The creator of all things came to earth in human form, fully God and fully man. Today, Pastor David will teach that we often limit the greatness of Jesus' ministry and only observe bits and pieces of who He is. Especially on Christmas, you might be celebrating a seasonally discounted Jesus and a partial version of Him, a kind Jesus that you don't need to sacrifice anything for. Are you committed to the true Jesus? Now here's Pastor David in the book of Philippians chapter 2 with today's edition of The Open Word.
1: People hear these invitations and they accept a partial, a seasonally discounted form of Jesus. So let me ask you, no, not what's in your wallet, but who really is in your heart? Because beloved, it makes a world of difference. It makes an eternal difference. I want you to go with me with one of the passages dealing with the, the birth of Jesus. Uh, it's uh, in the New Testament. It's, no, it's, it's not Matthew. No, it's not Luke either. No, it's not even John. It's actually in the book of Philippians. Go to Philippians chapter 2 with, with me if you would. No, there's no shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. There's no three kings coming in on the Orient Express or the Polar Express or what. No, there's no kings here. No, here in Philippians chapter 2, we read of the planned action of the mind of God that Christ would make himself known to give himself as a sacrifice in order to secure the salvation of mankind for those that would surrender their lives to his lordship within their lives. As the Apostle Paul writes here to the church in Philippi, he writes a, a, an encouraging letter. He writes to them an uplifting letter. As a matter of fact, within the church of Philippi, we don't see any major wrongs that are happening here. Paul doesn't write, uh, again, trying to correct anything. He simply wants to encourage them. He wants to challenge them in their faith, to live their faith in a true, in a full Christian life. Look with me here in Philippians. We won't go through the whole book, but down in chapter two and a little bit into chapter two, verse five. Paul writes to the church there. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very first portion of that verse, it It ought to alert every one of us, every individual who claims the name of Christ, who declares that you're a Christian. When when Paul declares that for you and I, who again proclaim that, that we are believers in Christ, when he declares to them that our minds ought to be that which is also in Christ Jesus, each one of us need to do some soul searching at that point in time. Is my mind like the mind of Christ. When in my life do I see the mind of Christ exhibited? Have my actions and my attitudes and, 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 and my thoughts this past week, have, have they really and truly demonstrated the, the mind of Christ? Or have they demonstrated how far I am from what I ought to be? as one who says that I'm a follower of Jesus, do I even desire that my mind be the mind of Christ? Or am I simply glad that I've got a railroad ticket out of hell and I'm not going going there because I got this ticket? But what about my everyday life? What about my continual existence? In this whole idea of living the Christian life, Paul says that there are some changes that need to happen in our life. If we're gonna call ourselves believers, if we're gonna call ourselves Christ followers, he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He had himself no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant. And you might say, well, pastor, that, that whole humility thing, that whole idea of serving other people, that's just not my personality style. That's just not really who I am. That may be true, but isn't that why we are called to die daily to self? Isn't that why the scripture says, no, the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Isn't that why Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus, a very religious guy, probably one of the good guys. I mean, we we hit on the Pharisees all the time about being so far away from God. But I believe that there were also some Pharisees that loved God. They were in a place of teaching the word to the people. They were in a place of authority. I think that Nicodemus was one of the good guys. And yet Jesus told him, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless there is a radical difference within your life, a, a spiritual change within your life, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. No matter how religious you are, no matter how good you are. You see, it's all too easy. It's all too easy for us to make excuses of why we can't do what we're called to do. And rather than humbling ourselves, literally falling on our faces and crying out to God, asking him to, to break us. Break me of my old self, of the, that pride, that arrogance, that selfishness. Break me of that, Father And then remold me into who you desire me to be. And then fill me fresh and new again with your Holy Spirit to overflowing. Yeah, all too often, all too often, even the church is too satisfied with our seasonally discounted version of the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Who's really in your heart? Paul goes on to tell us in the second half of verse 7. He says, and, and coming in the likeness of men, being found as in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There it is. That, that's the nativity verse of Philippians right there. God in human flesh. That's what is called the incarnation Being in the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, found in appearance as a man. Now, we need to be careful here, though. If this is the only passage that we had available to us in reference to the incarnation, we could really get a pretty good argument about Jesus not really being completely human. I mean, he only had the outward form of humanity. He only looked human. Uh, he, He came in the form. He came in the likeness. But the problem is, is in your ignorance, you'd miss not only the truth of the incarnation, you'd miss the power of the Incarnation. You see, the understanding of the incarnation, that's found throughout the Bible. It's found from from Genesis to Revelation, that the incarnation, that God himself would come in human flesh, that God would reveal himself. But you know what? The word incarnation is nowhere found. It's kind of like the Trinity. The concept, the understanding of the Trinity is found from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But you'll not find the word Trinity there. But yet the truth of both the Trinity and the incarnation is found throughout the word of God. So what's the big deal about the incarnation? Well, to get to that truth, you need to know what the incarnation means. What does incarnation mean? First and foremost, you need to understand that it's a theological word. When it came into being, it came into for the purpose as a theological word, a theological concept, a theological truth. You can't miss that. And although the concept comes from the pages of the word or of our Bibles. That word incarnation actually didn't come about until late or in the 13th century. It comes from a combination, a compound word within the Latin, simply meaning to the act of being made flesh, the act of being made flesh. And although it's actually, the, the word itself, incarnation, it's actually used well outside of the theological form now. People use it much like the phrase that Capital One had, what's in your wallet. People have taken the incarnation and twisted it and changed it all around. I mean, even like the fact that uh, cats are an incarnation of evil, you know, that kind of an idea for those of us that love cats. Uh, but... The original word, understand, it was definitely, it was a purely theological concept. One, one writer declares, he says that the choices, that what incarnation is, it's the choices and the acts of the pre-existent divine being, namely the Son of God, the action that the Son took in order to become a human being. He took on flesh, he became fully, truly human without ceasing to be fully, truly divine. Divinity is not something Jesus acquired later in life or even after his death or resurrection. According to the theology of the incarnation, he had always been the divine son of God even before he became Jesus, a human being. You see, we believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is 100% human and that he is at the same time 100% divine. I know those of you that are math aficionados, that, that's hard to understand. How can you have two? one? Well, that's where my lack of math comes in great because I can fully understand. It's not human math. It's God's math that allows two 100% things to enjoy the same place at the same time and be who he is, Jesus Christ, both God and man. Throughout the New Testament. We find that teaching, we find that balance between the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Both of those characteristics absolutely necessary. Grant Osborne in the the Baker Encyclopedia of the, the Bible under that title of incarnation writes, in the incarnation Jesus became a perfect human being. As God in human flesh, he suffered the divine penalty of death as an innocent substitute, being both God and a man. Jesus simultaneously revealed God's will for human life and reconciled sinful people to God through his own perfect life and death. Because of the incarnation, therefore, those who believe in Christ have peace with God And new life from him so here in Philippians Paul reminds us he reminds us that in his humility Christ became obedient obedient to the point of death even death of the cross how easily we miss this idea of us being of the same mind as Christ Particularly when the only Jesus we really know, the only Jesus we ever surrendered our life to, that holy infant so tender and mild, we totally miss the fullness of his mind and the commitment of sacrifice. If the greatest of our commitments is to play our drum for him, pa pum pum then we've completely missed out on what it means to die daily. What it means to be fully committed to Christ. Oh, I'll live for him. I'll do this for him. But will you die to self in order that he would live through you? His incarnation, his obedience, his death on the cross, that wasn't just to allow us to skip hell and have eternity and glory. His incarnation, his obedience, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That wasn't just so we could find peace and security. His incarnation, his obedience, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That wasn't just so he could be our closest friend. He has all of those things. His incarnation. His obedience, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father truly for us was to secure for us the ability to be reconciled to God. Because in our sin, we are far from him. And outside of Christ, there is no ability to be reconciled to God. No other way there is no other means of salvation except through him. All of this came about in order to secure for us the ability to be brought back into that right relationship with the God of all creation. To allow us to live our lives then in obedience and for the full glory of God. And as Paul tells Timothy, Oh, this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We look and we realize, Paul, you're the chief of sinners? Can't imagine where I'm going to be in that standing then. If Paul, the writer of the major portion of our New Testament, the one who is so powerful in starting the gospel in churches all throughout that area, he declares that he is the chief of sinners. Where are we? He says in verse 16, however, it's for that very reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Then he ends it there in verse 17. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How can that be within a heart and a life? That kind of praise, that kind of worship, that kind of relationship that would declare, oh, unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible to God who alone is wise. Oh, be honor and glory forever and ever. How can that truly be from our heart? if we don't have the right answer of who really is in our heart. If you fully committed, completely surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you truly know him as a savior and Lord of your life, if you recognize and understand that that little baby, meek and mild, also is the king and the sacrifice for all mankind. He is the Lord and creator of all that we know. If you fully recognize that though it was the shepherds that kept watch that night, there is coming that day as God highly exalts him. And gives him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Beloved, there is coming that day. He's not coming as a little baby. He's not coming meek and mild. He's coming reigning victorious. And he's coming as the word as as Revelation declares, man, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he would smite the nations. We don't think of that at Christmas time, do we? And unfortunately the world doesn't hear that reality because they're willing to accept a seasonally discounted, a partial version of Jesus a non-confrontational Jesus, a Jesus that I don't have to commit my life to, that I don't have to sacrifice my own life, dying daily to receive. Hymn that we sing quite often this time of year. Oh, come all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, but behold him. He is the king of angels. Amazing concept to think that the one who is king of the angels, creator of all the universe, was able to fit inside a little manger, to be able to fit inside that crib the God of all creation. We sing, sing choirs of angels. Sing in exaltation, sing all you citizens of heaven above. Glory to God, all glory in the highest. God in human flesh, come to dwell among us. Yea, Lord, we greet thee. Born this happy morning, Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing the truth, the theology, the understanding of the incarnation that speaks to our hearts and lives of the great God and the great love that he has for you and I. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Is he your Lord Do you know him truly as your savior and as your sacrifice? Is your commitment to him the one that says, I leave everything else in order that he might be everything to me? I die daily in order that he might live through me. Lord Jesus, be Lord of my life. Take away my sin. Make way for me in order that I might stand before God the Father as my Father, and not my judge. I surrender my life to you. Beloved, that's the commitment that he calls for you and I today. A commitment of all that we are, in order that we might receive all that he is.
0: As the Christmas season approaches, you can easily find yourself overwhelmed with the to-do lists, parties, gift-giving, decorating. The list goes on and on. We'd like to invite you to take a moment, however, and enjoy the peace and joy this season promotes. Remember why you're celebrating. Jesus came to live among people and love them like never before. Because of Him, you're here right now listening to this program. We hope this moment of peace renews a love for your Savior in your hearts and fills you with hope. If you'd like to hear more messages from The Open Word, You'll find them at TheOpenWord.com. Before our time with you is up today, we'd also like to invite you to be a part of our weekly worship gatherings. Here's Pastor David with more information.
1: Yes, we here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande, we have a seat waiting for you at one of our three weekend worship services. Come by on Saturday at 6.30 or Sunday at 9 or 11 o'clock. And even Wednesday night at 6.30. We guarantee you'll meet some smiling faces, a diverse group of Jesus-loving people, all on a journey to learn more about the Savior and the truth of His Word, the Bible. Come as you are, and you'll fit right in. You'll be able to find more about us when you visit our website, theopenword.com.
0: Thanks, Pastor David. That website again is theopenword.com. Just follow the link to our church's homepage. We're excited to worship Jesus with you. Thanks for tuning in today to The Open Word, and Merry Christmas.